Hello and welcome to Doing the Fridge. Now, I know what you're thinking, August is long gone, so why is there another episode of DTF? Well, we thought it'd be interesting to catch up with some of the people we spoke to before the Fringe and see just how they got on during August. Up first is Pollyanna Essie, who's the director of 20 Minutes of Action. Then we'll speak to Julian Spooner, the co-director of Rum and Clay. Finally, we'll end this podcast by chatting to Fergus Morgan, the theatre critic. On our first episode, we spoke to Pollyanna about 20 Minutes of Action, her verbatim play about a high-profile sexual assault case in America. At this year's Fringe, 20 Minutes of Action received a wealth of positive reviews. Culture Fix wrote that 20 Minutes of Action boldly reframes a truly controversial court ruling in a sharply effective and prescient manner, highlighting the injustice of a patriarchal society where issues regarding women's safety, consent and rape culture must urgently be addressed. And perhaps more importantly than the critical reviews, there are the honest and heartfelt comments that audience members have left. The play is regularly described as thought-provoking and powerful. One audience member wrote that they were expecting to feel all kinds of things, but as with all good theatre, it reaches parts of them that they had no idea it would. Pollyanna, thank you very much for joining us again. Um, When you hear such positive comments, how do you begin to comprehend that response? That was such a nice intro. Oh, that was so lovely to hear. Um, Yeah, I think I knew that that was going to happen in terms of I knew that people were going to be affected by it but I tell you what I didn't know I didn't realize people would be inspired by it which sounds really stupid thinking about it now but there were lots of people that came out of it going look I think I'm going to be really triggered I'm quite nervous but what actually happened was people came out and went okay right let's do something about this now um rather than feeling really upset um and I think just the way we played it was was slightly different to the last two times, which made that like reaction be evoked, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, is that something you were expecting to happen? Or, you know, could you even hope that, that the play would have that response? I hoped, well, what I hoped was like we spoke to, spoke about at the beginning of the podcast was I really hoped that men would watch it. And I, I tell you what I didn't think would happen. I didn't think middle-aged men would watch it. So I was expecting very young audiences because it had been a student play before this. Obviously, the only audience were young. So not many adults come to see student plays. So I thought that's what it would be, which was a bit naive. And then I turned up and there were tons of middle-aged men. And we had so many great comments from them, which really got me, actually, because you often just think, oh, well, they're stuck in their ways. But actually they really were hit by it and I had a lot of people saying well I'm going to talk to my son about this you know we're going to have lots of conversations over dinner about this and that made me really really happy and you could watch it was so interesting to sit in the audience and watch different people and I used to obviously write notes as as a director obviously you just write notes in every single pause and I always, always write these little notes that would be like guy to the left on the front row is panicking or like all these things it was so fun um because you could see different people's reactions of like mums finding certain parts really emotional and kind of contemplating in their head what they would do if their son was convicted of something like this and and dads feeling the same and then like girlfriends thinking and boyfriends I don't know it was just really interesting to watch everyone like everyone's been affected by it in some kind of way so yeah that was super interesting to watch 
Yeah, and I, I think the venue really helped that because you had audience on three sides. You were very aware of people watching the play. You could see them and you could gauge your reaction and compare it with everyone else's. Um, and, you know, at one point I remember... Um, not wanting to make eye contact with the perpetrator. They were standing right in front of me, but I would do anything I could to, to not make eye contact and look elsewhere. It just made me feel really uneasy. Yeah, I'm glad that it did. But it's funny because with that, like, we changed Benji, the, the actor who plays the perpetrator. He's incredible and he works so, so hard. And we had so many conversations about what we can do differently with his character because he's played it every time in each, in each performance. And this time we really said, you know, he had he had written on his script, don't be a dick, be relatable. <laughs> because we really wanted to make him really relatable to every every man and every sort of teenage boy to make people understand that this is something that happens to so many people. And so that's where we kind of got it from. And I think a lot of people were affected by the fact that they saw themselves in him in some way or saw their friends in him in some way. Because he was just a normal guy. We tried to make him as just normal and not like sinister or anything as possible. And so I think that worked, but yeah. Yeah, I think that definitely came across in the piece. And I think that was one of you know the strongest parts of the piece. The, the fact that we all knew what the perpetrator had done but they weren't portrayed in a 2D manner. They were complex and nuanced and human. And I think when you see a human character on stage, you do find ways of engaging and sympathising with parts of, of, of their personality. Yeah, or a situation that, that you've been in that, like, you know, because if you really, really boil it down, this isn't sort of the way of thinking about it. If you boil it down, he was drunk, he made a mistake. Like, that's what a lot of people would see it as. And I think, you know, we've all done stupid things when we're drunk. And I think a lot of people will look back and go, actually, God, was that consensual? Like, did, did she say yes specifically, verbally, you know, all those things? And I think the whole cast really added something. Uh, because you could see the impact through the sister or through the family, that really added a layer of complexity to the story. Obviously, this is the third time you've put 20 minutes of action on. Um, so is there anything you'd change or anything you wish you'd done differently? This oh my God, so many things. <laughs> this was so annoying. So in my, <laughs> this is so, cla but this is classic perfectionist director things. But as um, I used to sit in, in the fringe, I'd sit on one of the sides near the lighting box. So just just because it was out of the way of everyone. Um, but for the last performance, I was like, right, I'm going to sit slap bang in the middle, best seat, just so I can like see it. And throughout that, I have my notebook and I was like, oh my gosh, I changed that. You would stand there instead. You'd look at her at this point. And I was like, oh, so, but it's classic, isn't it? Of course, you're going to want to change everything. But if I was to do it again, I think I need a big break from it now. But well, not that big. But if I was to do it again, I think there would be a lot of changes. And I would really play with, I'd workshop a lot more. Um, I don't think I'd change the script that much, but I'd workshop a lot more of like the movement and try different styles and stuff. Um, especially because of the reviews that we've had have been amazing, but a lot of them have, have sort of criticised the directing, which I found really helpful because it's meant that it's really solidified my kind of idea of I need to learn more <laughs> and I'm not experienced enough. And that was that's really exciting to get comments like that being like, just just do it more, learn more, like, I don't know, do some kind of masters in it or something. And I'm like, yes, okay, I need to do that. Yeah, yeah okay, so that leads really nicely onto one of my next questions. Um, what is next for 20 Minutes of Action and for you as a creative? Um, are you planning to take it on another run somewhere or would you like to rest it and then see what happens over the next few months and then make a decision? So I feel like it, 
it's hard because I, I would like to say I feel like it has another run in it, which I think it does. But I have a lot of different ideas <laughs> for things to do along, along the lines of this uh, topic. And I'd love to kind of branch out into film a little bit, but I need to gain a bit more experience in that before I just go ahead and straight into it. But there's a couple, yeah, there's a couple of things I want to talk about in consent and especially with young girls. And I really want to collaborate a lot with um, younger women in high schools and things in Scotland specifically. Um, and I'd love to do some, I keep in the verbatim style and, and specifically verbatim because there's just so much power in that. Um, I'd love to kind of hold workshops with, younger girls and women and talk about consent talk about what they feel is not like normalized in their environment at high schools and things um just because of horror stories I've heard of just what they thought was normal and they grew up and thought actually no that was that was really unacceptable um and yeah I'd really love to delve into all of that and develop something hopefully maybe for next fringe and have like a full year of kind of a developmental process and also I'm so interested in art therapy and drama therapy and how essential creativity is to heal um and that I think will be part of that even if it doesn't go to fringe I think a full year of you know people working through that and workshopping would be really helpful yeah that sounds um really exciting yeah we often hear of the fringe being described as a roller coaster there are some real highs but also some real lows and stressful and anxious moments. Um, with all the reviews and the positive things that the audience have said, is that reflective of your experience as a whole? Do, do the stars tell all of the story or is there more to it than that? No, I mean, it's never reflective of your experience because your experience is like months and months of hard work and months and months of panicking about things or finding things great, or like exactly loads of highs and loads of lows. And then one person comes in and wax a few stars on it like it doesn't you know it doesn't really mean anything um it's it's hard to say as some you know someone who's got good and bad reviews it is literally just one person's opinion and that person may be an incredibly experienced theatre director more often than not they're actually not and you sort of go okay awesome like that's your opinion thank you so much that's great but what I learned from reviews this time was that they are one person's opinion but if you're getting the same comment each time then it's something to look into and that's what I got the same kind of criticism of specific directional decisions I'd made I was like that's super interesting so therefore maybe let's like change that and, and work around that and see how I can improve that for myself but no it's literally just one person's opinion like it's that's it <laughs> and yeah a bad a bad review really just doesn't mean anything especially if you're getting audience reactions like we were if we were got one star reviews from everyone but we still got the audience reactions we did I literally wouldn't care like, it's incredible that we got those. That's all I care about is audience. Reviewers don't matter. <laughs> okay, and now moving away from 20 Minutes of Action, what was the best piece of theatre or the best show you saw during August? Oh, my God, that's such a difficult question. Okay. Um, colossal. I think it was Colossal, which was an underbelly belly button, I think. 12.30 each day, I can't remember. Um, it was absolutely amazing. Um, one man show, and I can't remember his name, Patrick someone. I think it was Patrick McPherson. But basically he did um, a show a couple of years ago um, called The Man, and that was the most incredible thing ever about toxic masculinity. And I was like, well, I know him, I know he's an incredible writer, so I'll go and watch it. Oh my God, the tech, like the lighting and the sound, was just incredible and that was something that I struggle with and really want to work with people who are really experienced in that because it's it just literally makes a show we all know that and also in the fringe you get such a 
normally you get such a limited rig so they did but my god they used it it was incredible i loved it loved every second it's so smooth so yeah inspirational from that <laughs> perfect um thank you very much for coming back to speak with us and all the best for everything in the future thank you you too Next, I catch up with Rum and Clay's co-director, Julian Spooner. Project Dictator, your play at this year's Edinburgh Fringe, did very well critically, with What's On Stage and British Theatre Guide, amongst others, giving you five stars. Broadway Baby described it as an intelligent analysis of the descent from democracy into totalitarianism. Project Dictator manages to balance the ridiculousness and bone-chilling nature of events that can come from the political arena. From the outside, Julian Spooner, it seems like a very good fringe for you. Is that the case? Did it go as well as you'd hoped? Did the audience respond in the way you expected them to? Mm. Yeah, no, it was a really, it was a really good fringe for us. Um, and you sort of, I think it exceeded our expectations in some respects. I mean, I don't know, like, we didn't really know what to expect of the fringe in general. Like, you know, obviously it's the, it was the first proper one back with a full, with a full season, full programme. Um, and we just we just didn't know if audiences would come, you know, we didn't know what the attendance would be like, um, you know, and particularly with the cost of living crisis and the accommodation stuff, there was a lot of sort of bad PR in the run up to the fringe. So, uh, you know, we, we were we were we were slightly um, we were slightly cautious, actually. Yeah? And we, we just sort of decided to just try and enjoy it um and just really kind of embrace the fact that we were back at an arts festival and back amongst with our peers and you know and just and just sort of not try not to worry too much about about you know ticket sales or reviews and stuff like that and just sort of just embrace the fact that we were performing in edinburgh again um and and the audiences were were great we we, we got really good attendance um yeah and and they really it sort of it sort of became a bit of um I guess I'd describe it it, it is kind of a festival show like it's sort of it it, it suits the festival vibe quite well um because it is so playful and it's asking the audience to kind of jump on board and respond to it and be complicit with it and actually you know in Edinburgh people people are primed you know that primed to have that experience. Uh, so they're much more, much more eager to jump in. But they've also maybe already seen like two shows that day. So they're already kind of switched on as viewers. Whereas sometimes it's a very different, you know, performance experience, you know, when you go, you know, regionally or wherever, you know, it's like Tuesday evening, you know, it's slightly rainy, you know, everyone's come from work, you know, and you're really, you're really starting the car, you know. You, you, but but in Edinburgh, you feel like you're already they're already at a six or seven or eight, you know what I mean? They're already kind of warm. So you're just taking them up a little bit. Um, and we, we we kept on saying it was disturbingly easy to whip people up into a populist frenzy in Edinburgh. It was genuinely, um, genuinely disturbing, um, but like in a great way. Um, and uh, and yeah, so so it was, yeah, we were really happy with it. And, and we were really happy kind of with our decision to take it to Edinburgh because it's, um, it's a commitment on on so many different levels, um, on a financial level um, and and every everything level. So, so we were really, uh, you know, we felt that decision was sort of validated by 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 how it went, um, and you know how it sold, and I think also its future life as well. I think it will have, um, I think it will have a healthy kind of um, 
a healthy healthy touring future life in the UK and and abroad as well. So, um, so yeah, we're really we're really we're really happy with how it went. Good. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about the two very distinct halves to the play. Um, did you enjoy playing a dictator? Did you enjoy whipping the audience up, or uh, did you get a lot out of the subtlety and the nuance of of the second part? Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, the first half, absolutely, I absolutely massively enjoyed that um, that turn as well, because obviously I start as the kind of real idiot clown, you know, the one that almost people feel sorry for slightly. Um, and this put upon kind of um, guy, Jeremy, who sort of doesn't, isn't ever allowed to do anything apart from hold the props or play hundreds of different two-dimensional characters in the background. And, you know, his frustration at doing that. Um, and then and then sort of winning the crowd. The crowd is so willing to get behind Jeremy, you know, so willing to sort of like, you know, boost him up, boost his confidence and um and get behind him. And then and then when that turns and then turning on them was really fun as well. Um and there's a particular moment in the in the at the end of the first half when I ask, you know, the audience to um rat each other out, you know, if people aren't getting on board fully. Um and it's funny, like in London, when we did it, we did it for five weeks in London. And I'd say 50% of the audiences, 50% uh, wouldn't, wouldn't rat out anyone out. And 50% maybe would, one or two. In Edinburgh, it was basically 99% of audiences ratted someone out um, to varying degrees. Sometimes it was like 20 people put their hand up. Um, and, and, and so I would try and I had to turn on quite a lot of people. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a, a, a lot of fun. Um, and you know, people are, people are just so willing to get on board with that stuff and it, and it made the show make a lot more sense. I think it sort of, it made the show really read, um, because the show is really a conversation with the audience, um, and a conversation about the complicity of, or our complicity in power uh, and power structures. Um, and so the more vibrant uh, that conversation is between the audience, the, the more the show makes sense and works really. Um, and so the second half is, yeah, it's a completely different dynamic. And in a fact, in, in a way it was sort of, that was another challenge that we didn't necessarily have in London was actually just bringing them back slightly and like uh, just tonally um, because, because it was so raucous in the first half that it is such an abrupt kind of curtain down uh, a sort of like bucket of, you know, iced water um, that, that actually that, that took a bit, that took a bit longer to sort of tonally wrestle them into that, into that other place than it might have done when we opened it in London. As an actor, it's it, it's a bit of a challenge because you're going from like being, you know, a fourth wall really not existing to kind of, to, to playing uh, playing another space, I suppose, and, and play, playing another kind of conceit with the audience. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it, was a, it was a fun, it was a fun challenge from like a performance point of view as well. In our conversation last time, we spoke about how Edinburgh has contributed to the development of rum and clay and to you as a creative. Um, you took Shuttleland to the Fringe 11 years ago. In that decade of making work and coming to the Fringe, do you still find there are things to learn? Are there things you would have done differently this time? Mm, that's, yeah, that's a good question. I think I've learned to... I think I'm better at riding the roller coaster than I used to be. 
Um, because even if your Edinburgh goes well uh, with reviews and audiences, it's still quite an emotional roller coaster. You're performing every single day. Um, you're kind of there's a, it's a sensory overload. Um, uh, you know, you're just you're seeing art. You're you're kind of you know you're just talking to you're having so many conversations. You know, um, and you're and you're also performing on top of that. And so um, I think I'm better and more sanguine than I used to be about 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 that, about the ups and downs, you know, about the kind of um, the oscillation between shows as well. You know, one show, one shows, you know, and, and, and shows do oscillate, you know, and that's 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 live theatre. So sometimes you'll, you will have an exceptional show and the next day it might be not so good or blah, blah, blah. But, I, but I, I, it's not it's not like that oscillating between, you know, like five star to one star quality it just means that you know your experience of them is it is changing um but i'm more sanguine about that now in terms of of, of accepting that that's just that's just a part of the the beast um and 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 trying to um trying to like keep perspective whilst whilst in edinburgh and i think i've I think that's just the amount of times I've done it, to be honest, in terms of 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 knowing that, you know, things that are things that like really appear to be sort of monumentally huge in that month. Uh, I know by the middle of September will not seem monumentally huge, um, good and bad uh, that, you know, so 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 keeping perspective is something that I've, I've learned, really. And I don't think like in practical terms, like we were lucky in terms of our production manager was also the venue manager of our space. And so uh, Adam Jeffries, um, he did an amazing job at looking after the show and, and, and making sure that that was, that all ran smoothly. Um, I don't know if you can, I mean, that was kind of lucky. I don't know if you could sort of could just get that every year. Um, so I don't know if that's a lesson learned. I don't know if we'll ever have that again, but um that the importance of of that production manager role or that person on the ground who is you know making sure that everything's running smoothly every day and and the get the get-ins and the get-outs and, and all of the sort of like more kind of mundane sort of practical uh management of it um is really useful because you know as a creative and performer you know you rarely have the bandwidth to be able to tackle any of that stuff yeah. on top of what you're trying to do so yeah i think it's a very busy month and there's an expectation on you not just to be in a play every day but uh, to go out and make the most of the city and all the other creatives that are there so my final question for you julian is what was your favorite thing that you saw during the month i'm just going to get the list of things that i actually what so this is another thing that i learned is to write down everything you see okay because i just forget um well i mean in terms of, i've got a few different things i mean i really enjoyed it's quite sort of the um the stamped town comedy night uh which was at 12 30 in the pleasant's queen dome uh it was it's utterly insane um like a really good like, I don't think I've seen a variety show that felt that out of control, you know, and genuinely felt like it could fall apart at any moment. And, and, and you know, and completely, completely anarchic, uh, which is kind of what you want at 1230 at night. Um, that was that was really brilliant. I really enjoyed We Were Promised, Promised Honey. But yes, yes, no, no. 
Um, I've known like Sam who wrote it quite a few years. Um, we've, we've done the fringe quite a few times together and it was really great just to see him kind of really come into his own and, and have a really, really successful fringe. And it was, you know, fully deserved. Um, it's a brilliant show. And actually also part of the Edinburgh International Festival, the end of Eddie, I really enjoyed that. I liked the work of Edouard Luis and I thought it was like an interesting um, theatrical kind of transposition of of his world. Yeah, I saw the end of Eddie as well. And yeah, I, I thought it was fantastic. And um, the, the integration of live music, the four actors playing one character, but also... Uh, every other character uh, the fact that it was performed in dutch that wasn't an issue um there was one particularly good scene which involved all the actors stripping down to their boxes and uv paint but i'll uh, let your imagination do the rest um i saw another good show as part of the eif which was called room it was made by a chap called james thierry who is charlie chaplin's grandson um and for two hours nothing really happened but at no point did you feel you could look away it was, it was always captivating um so that, that was really good. No, he's, was, he's, he's an incredible performer. Julian Spooner, thank you very much for coming back to speak with us again. Uh, it's been really interesting and uh, I wish you all the best for the future. No, no, thank you. Now it's over to theatre critic Fergus Morgan. Last time I spoke to you, Fergus, you told me that when you're at the fringe, it can be very hard not to get carried away and it can be difficult to say no and decide you're not going to see some shows. Um, I read on Twitter that you'd watched over 68 shows at this year's fringe. Was that you being able to say no or did you find yourself seeing more than you'd planned? Um, I, well, I reviewed 68. I, I went to see uh, more than that, I think. Maybe it must have been a bit more like 80. Um I guess that was probably about what I expected to go and see. I Towards the end of the festival, if I went to cover a show and I didn't really like it, particularly for the stage, I I, um, I decided not to write reviews because my, my kind of thinking was in the last few days of the festival, like a two-star review is just going to, just going to, you know, it's a real kick in the balls after, if you've spent a whole month putting on a show anyway. So I, I sort of, tailed off towards the end I hit a wall about halfway through as well where I went away for a weekend and then and then came back was I able to say no to stuff um not really no <laughs> I said yes to everything but that's just because that's what being a freelance writer's like you're always worried about uh where the next sort of job is coming from where the next money's coming from so you end up just saying yes to everything and being very overworked which is what I was yeah it 80 shows sounds incredible and overwhelming um once the fringe is over and you've had this really intense time um what does the rest of your working life look like are you straight on to the next thing or is it do you, do you take that time off after to reset and relax before you start doing features and stuff again well i had two weeks holiday um one with my partner's family and then one with my family and i just started back at my laptop this week actually um so sort of mid to late september and i'm sort of trying to put together my calendar for the rest of the year i don't do as much reviewing um outside of the festival i do a lot more sort of interviewing and feature writing and things like that for the stage for various other people for i write publish my own thing on substack as well called the crush bar which takes up a fair amount of time um i'm going to dublin theater festival uh, in a few weeks time and then i'm i've been invited to a, a a theatre showcase in Kosovo after that so I, I'm going to that 
Um, but it's very much sort of piecing together bits and bobs of work until the next sort of big thing comes around. Yeah, that does sound like a very interesting time to have all these very different um, sort of things things to look forward to. Um, last time we spoke, we spoke a little bit about um, Crush Bar, which is your Substack, and I understand that you're now that it's grown to a certain level, you're making a few changes with it. Would you like to explain some of those changes a little bit more? Yeah. So, um, well, I've been doing it for like twenty months now, and I always said once I got to a thousand subscribers. I would change things up a bit. Um, so going forward, um, most of the most of the issues are going to stay the same. They're sort of regular interviews with emerging theatre makers. Every month there's going to be a sort of um, recommendations issue for um, fringe theatre productions around the country. There's going to be... I, I, I want to do more... I want to visit more festivals. I want to see theatre in more countries as well, hence Dublin, hence Kosovo. So I'm going to try and introduce a sort of international angle to it as well. And um, I introduced this um, sort of paid subscription model uh, that uh, that people can support the crush bar through if they if they want to as well. Because um, well, it takes a lot of my time and I want to make some money from it, basically. At the end of the fringe, you wrote that 2.2 million tickets sold is a meaningless statistic that allows the events organisers to claim a triumph while it obscures the festival's festering problems. Could you briefly explain why selling 2.2 million tickets isn't perhaps as good a headline as it sounds, um, especially for a festival recovering from COVID? Well, of course, 2.2 or 2.5, was it? 2.2, 2.5 million tickets was it's incredible. Obviously, it's it's a astonishing amount of tickets sold, but just judging the festival on sheer quantity of tickets flogged, sheer number of bums on seats, doesn't really tell the whole story because it's it's more than that. There, there's no there's nothing behind that that says okay, which shows were those tickets sold for? Um, did most people make money? Um, how many people actually had a good experience? How many people had a terrible time? Um, there's a whole lot more going on at the fringe than just selling tickets. And I think that always having the headline of, oh, so-and-so many million tickets sold um, kind of obscures that. It, it, it gives gives the people that organise the fringe, the fringe society, but then you change something to to shout about and feel proud about and it justifies them doing exactly the same thing again next year and it ignores some of the things that um really went wrong at the festival this year um uh my personal experience was i thought the quality of the shows was lower which is one thing but that's you know i don't want to castigate anyone for that because it's been a very difficult time to make theater but the the housing situation was terrible and is terrible in edinburgh throughout the year some London-based producers made some fucking outrageous suggestions that they should get rid of the um, Scottish legislation in Edinburgh protecting um, vulnerable renters year-round purely so that people can move in and live in the city who don't live here uh, permanently. That was just that was just absurd. Um, the well, the the whole thing, and from in my opinion, is just far too big for the infrastructure of the city um, and uh just trumpeting about millions of tickets sold um isn't really engaging with that conversation at all yeah that's that's really interesting and you know i think you're quite right the 
saying 2.2 million tickets have been sold is a stat without context. I have no idea how many tickets are up for sale during the month of August. So it would be interesting to see that number as a proportion. You know, is that half? Is it over half? Is it less than half? Yeah. How many tickets? How many? How many of those tickets are just going to big name comedians that would sell out anywhere they went? And how many of them are actually going to supporting emerging theatre makers, emerging comedians, emerging artists? Um, I think. I don't have any statistics to back this up, but on purely anecdotal evidence, I think uh, for, for certainly for fringe theatre audiences, we're a long way down this year. And 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 also press was there was there were very few um, sort of critics wandering around, and everyone was struggling to to get their shows covered anywhere. Um, hence, why those of us that were here were kind of rushed off our feet a lot of the time. Um, and also, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I fell out of love with the Edinburgh Fringe this year. It's a brilliant festival. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I'm very, very happy that it exists. I just think I'm just very wary that everyone talked about uh, the year off, the years off because of COVID as a time to sit back and reflect. But it seems to be just back to the bad old ways. I was going to end on asking you how you're feeling about next year's Fringe, but you've already said you've not fallen out of love with it. So I think that's important. But are you excited for next year's Fringe? I'm excited for it because it's work, which is good, and it's reliable work, and it's uh, fairly well-paid work, and it's exciting having the world uh, arrive on your doorstep. Um, I think there, I think there has to be some sort of solution to the to the housing situation, and I think um, there's lots of people just pushing the pushing it around as if it's some sort of football, and no one actually getting to grips with the issue, which is that the festival is too big. But, you know, if, if it's run for profit, which most of the the venue companies are, then bigger is better. But, you know, and they're not, they're not going to they're not going to sacrifice their profits. So, you know. Thank you very much for joining us, Fergus. Um, and thank you for reflecting on your experience of the Fringe. Um, I hope to see you there next year or at some other theatre before then. Um, that is it for DTF for this year. Thank you very much for listening. And uh, if you've missed any of the episodes, do go back and listen to hear more about these conversations. Thank you very much, and I'll see you later.